0: good sunday evening to all my fellow 101 history podcast listeners out there i hope that everybody has had a good weekend i know i've had a good one Uh, my wife and i went to a um, family friend's uh, wedding yesterday and it was a lot of fun saw um, people that i had not seen in some time and it was great to see um, the friend who got uh, married yesterday yesterday um couldn't have asked for a better day and um I'm very thankful that she and her husband were able to get married, uh, considering that uh, with all that's going on in the world, uh, especially with coronavirus, uh, I, I know that a lot of people out there have had to put weddings on hold or have delayed them. Um, it's just a very um, trying time for a lot of people out there. But somehow, everything worked out yesterday, so cheers um, to my um to a friend of mine uh, who was able to get married yesterday. So uh, we are still on uh, through the perilous fight from the burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, The Six Weeks That Saved the Nation by Steve Vogel. Where uh, the last time I was with you all, uh, we were talking about the burning of Washington that was the equivalent of a 9-11 or a Pearl Harbor for its day. are we going to get through this crisis we will we have no other choice if not our country could falter not just falter it could no longer exist and that's the, that was the objective of the british it wasn't so much just to burn washington it was to uh, crumble our government to where our government no longer could function but is it safe to say that in the end, when this is all said and done with that the British are going to become somewhat overconfident and feel that, okay, with even with Baltimore, we're still going to have the upper hand to where we can actually still uh, defeat the Americans? They're going to assume that. But what they are also going to be in for is they're going to be in for a— um, You could say a rude awakening, but perhaps they're going to be in for a different um, experience. In other words, they're going to see a rejuvenated American, um, not just country, but a rejuvenated military. And how does a military force become rejuvenated? By means of different leadership. Well, on August 26th of 1814, two days after the burning of Washington has taken place, A drastic change in military leadership takes place. Who was the commander of the 10th military district? Brigadier General William Winder. Yes, he was a successful lawyer. But just because you're a lawyer, it doesn't automatically mean you have good military experience either. So, Given that uh, Brigadier General William Winder is going to be removed, well, before he goes about being removed, how does he go about knowing that all this has happened? Well, first off, he receives intelligence that British forces have left Washington and are now now en route to Baltimore, which is 40 miles to the northeast of D.C. Baltimore is going to be the city that's going to uh, be the rock that's going to keep this country together. And we'll get to that part here shortly. But at this point in time, things don't look very good for Brigadier General William Winder. He's What is he now being remembered for? For having presided over one of the worst military debacles in the nation's young republic, being the Battle of Bladensburg. This was supposed to have been the battle that would have kept the British from advancing onto Washington. Once, given that the first and the second American military lines had broken, and they were running for their lives, the third unit led by Commodore Joshua Barney was left to fend for themselves, and while, yes, they put up a courageous fight, and despite Barney being shot and being treated with the proper dignity and class by the British, it was not enough to save Bladensburg. And nor was it sadly enough to save Washington. But it is safe to say though that Brigadier General William Winder has behaved like a coward. I know that's harsh to say there, but hey, the guy had no alternative plan to get the units regrouped back into line to take another stand. So, yes, he is being now remembered for having presided over one of the worst military debacles. Now, who is Major General Samuel Smith? Well, I could tell you this much right now. He is the militia commander in Baltimore. Is Is that a good thing that we have someone else... Who is not only just the militia commander of Baltimore, but happens to be a native of Maryland, and not just a native of Maryland, but uh, but has a great deal of knowledge about Baltimore. Yes. Here's part two of the question: Does Baltimore, Maryland cover the 10th Military District, which Brigadier General William Winder presides over? Yes. Well, how does Winder himself learn about the change in the uh, command? Uh, status position over Baltimore. While en route, Winder himself is intercepted by a messenger from the opposite direction, telling him the news of this switch in leadership. And it might be safe to say that this was breaking news for its time, but I can also tell you it was not fake news. This was real stuff. So, in the aftermath of the Bladensburg debacle, Baltimore City leaders all agree unanimously for one thing that had to be taken that had to be uh, done, and that was to have Major General Samuel Smith take command of the entire defense system of Baltimore. Now It's great that the Baltimore city leaders have all come to agreement on this. Do they get support from senior military commanders in the city? Absolutely. This ranges from Major George Armistead, commander at Fort McHenry, Captain Oliver Hazard Perry, or Perry, rather, the hero of Lake Erie, to Brigadier General John Stricker, who was a Maryland militia commander, they all voted in favor of having Major General Samuel Smith be in charge of Baltimore's defenses. This is huge, not just huge unanimous support, but as I said a moment ago, we're going to find out why this is even more important. Not because of the guy's from Maryland, but of all the connections he has within Baltimore. Connections are huge, especially now at a time of crisis like this, because Here again, this is what's going to make or break, not just for Baltimore, but for our country. Now, Brigadier General William Winder, his uncle is Governor Levin Winder from Maryland. Does Governor Levin Winder, given that his nephew has just presided over one of the worst debacles in the nation's young exist, republic existence in terms of military uh, battles. How does Gover- Governor Levin Winder handle all this? He actually supports the change. Now, I know that must have been a very difficult one, considering that it's his own nephew, but sometimes even family members have to uh, do the unthinkable, and that is to um, cut one of their own family members loose in terms of not allowing him or her, to hold a certain um, title status. Not just title status, but in terms of command, uh, leadership, and a post. Who is Major General Samuel Smith? In other words, what do we know about him? Well, Well, I did research. He was born in 1752. It's interesting to think he was born the year after James Madison was. Thomas Jefferson was only nine years old in 1752. George Washington is 20 years old in 1752. And not to get off track or anything, but you know everybody gets this assumption real quick that George Washington built Mount Vernon where he lived. No, he didn't. For those of you who want a little 101 history, I'll give it to you right here. Mount Vernon was built by George Washington's half-brother, Lawrence, and Lawrence Washington named Mount Vernon in honor of a British general for whom he served under, being Sir Edward Vernon, whom he had the utmost respect for. So when Lawrence Washington dies in 1752 at the age of 34, George... Becomes a um, not the ultimate owner, but he leases Mount Vernon out from Lawrence's widow. And then when she dies a few years after he does, then he becomes the sole inheritor of Mount Vernon. Because Lawrence Washington and his wife, I don't believe, had children of their own, but if they did, their children would have been too young to have even inherited the estate. So the bottom line is George Washington became the sole uh, inheritor of Mount Vernon. But it's interesting to note, given that Major General Samuel Smith is born in 1752, that's also the same year that Washington starts to lease Mount Vernon from from his half-brother's widow. But nonetheless, Major General Samuel Smith is born in Carlisle, or what we know as the province of Pennsylvania. And if any of you want to know where Carlisle is, that's uh, just before getting into Harrisburg not far from uh, say Lancaster County or what's known as Amish country. He moves to Baltimore, Maryland in 1759 at the age of seven. He attends a private academy. He was heavily involved in mercantile affairs up until the American Revolutionary War. But during the Revolutionary War, he serves as a captain, a major, and a lieutenant colonel in the Continental Army. So he works his way up the ladder and he knows what he's doing. Now, from 1790 to 1792, he is a member of Maryland's House of Delegates, and in 1794, he becomes a brigadier general to the Maryland militia during the infamous Whiskey Rebellion, which, took, which takes place a year before, but it still um, got pockets of activity in 1794, but all that's going on in what we now know as present-day western Pennsylvania around Pittsburgh. Samuel Smith serves in Congress early on, from 1793 up until about 1803. But it's interesting to note, and I did not know this about him. But in 1800, which was a presidential election year, and who's running for president on the anti-Federalist side? Thomas Jefferson. Who's running up? Who's running for re-election? The current president, John Adams. It was. Major, Well, he wasn't major general yet at this time, but it was Samuel Smith who helped secure the winning ballot in the U.S. House of Representatives that enabled Thomas Jefferson to become president. Now, we have to remember in 1800, even though Thomas Jefferson is an anti-federalist and John Adams is a federalist, Thomas Jefferson is the vice president. And we've got a constitutional crisis here we are still deadlocked after nearly 50 ballots we can't we're not able to determine who's going to be our president samuel smith comes through and helps secure the winning ballot he obviously helps some other people change their votes to give jefferson the presidency the 11th amendment to our us constitution bit pretty much um changes how we go about voting for presidents in that you can't have the vice president of the United States be of one party and the president of the United States be another. In other words, you have to have separate tickets. In other words, you have to have uh, a platform for Republican and Democrats for president and vice president. So all that changes by around uh, a few years after Thomas Jefferson officially becomes president. So That's the only time in our country's history where where, um, a presidential election had to be determined in the U.S. House of Representatives uh, based off of the circumstances that were at stake. So, if it weren't for Samuel Smith, um, who knows knows how many more ballots it would have taken in order to have secured an actual uh, winner? He goes on to become a U.S. Senator from Maryland. And what makes Samuel Smith very prominent is that he eventually becomes one of Baltimore's wealthiest merchants. Um, How did he become a very wealthy merchant? Well, his business ventures in shipping, banking, and land speculation are what makes him so rich. Hey, if you have connections, not just connections in these areas, but could somehow make um, a fortune then he is definitely in the right boat. By age 62 in 1814, he has commanded the Baltimore Militia for three decades. So he just didn't get this position overnight. He's been commanding for three decades. The guy knows what he's doing. Now, did Samuel Smith's family, here's a good question, did Samuel Smith's family have connections to President James Madison? The answer is yes. Samuel's brother, Robert, was Madison's Secretary of State from 1809 to 1811. Well, what happened to Robert? I mean, why was he no longer Secretary of State? President Madison fires the guy for disloyalty and incompetence. The firing of Samuel's brother led Samuel himself to become opposed to the Madison administration. And there was a group led by Samuel himself known as the Invisibles, The Invisibles were a group that expressed opposition towards Madison's policies. So uh, here we are. Uh, We're going to keep talking about Major General Samuel Smith here. Was he an avid supporter of the War of 1812? Yes, he was. Once the war broke out, he began preparing Baltimore's defenses. He had strong ties with the city's merchant and shipping classes, which also enabled strong financial backing support. Was Samuel Smith one step ahead of the Madison administration when the war broke out? Yes, despite all the fighting going on in Canada, Samuel Smith was already implementing defense safety measures into play around Baltimore, (laughs) <laughs> while Madison, while President Madison himself and Secretary of War John Armstrong, were allowing Washington to become a sitting duck, <laughs> the two of them were convinced that Baltimore would be the city that would be attacked the whole time. They just allowed Washington to be a sitting duck. For one, they just they they were they really were just convinced that Washington, being an open wilderness, there would be nothing there for the British to even want to um, lay, set their hands on. Well, as I mentioned from the previous podcast, they burned not only the White House and the Capitol building, they burned every other governmental building with the exception of the Patent Office. So they came with a clear message, and that was to bring our government to its knees. In the aftermath of the British burning of Washington, has James Madison shown any courage? Now this is a tough question because there are those at this time who truly believe he behaved like a coward for turning his back on the country in, in, in a time of, of uh, terrible circumstances. Many are convinced that he sold us out to England. And he probably did in a way. But in the days after the burning of Washington, James Madison has been on horseback nonstop, left and right assessing damages to buildings including the white house and the capitol he has been meeting with members of his cabinet but he also does a remarkable thing it should have been something though that should have been done much sooner but at least he's got at least he's found the time now to do it and it's and it's the best thing to do now because if he doesn't do it now and how is John Arm- Secretary of War John Armstrong going to support the people of Baltimore? Madison fires the guy and replaces him with James Monroe, who is already the Secretary of State. But Madison knows that because of James Monroe's experience in the military, from being in the American Revolution to being minister to England, Spain, France. The guy knows not just foreign affairs, he knows how to do the military stuff as well. And I do believe that had James Monroe been Secretary of War from the start, the burning of Washington itself might not have happened. Monroe would have had all kinds of defense measures put into play, earthworks, uh, redoubts. He would have had everything, uh, not just for Washington, but for the Virginia and Maryland eastern shores. This... On one hand, this war could, the, the, the burning of Washington could have been prevented. After all, there were dispatches sent to Madison from numerous people. But I've also learned, and that we've all learned from history, that sometimes it takes a disaster. And I believe it might have taken uh, the burning of Washington to make, uh, James, and this next question is, is that the burning of Washington. It made James Madison realize that militiamen could no longer be counted on as the primary force in putting down wars involving great superiors. And who are those great superiors? The British, foreign nations. The British. Madison. He um, he, he was in, he endured a rude awakening. Yes, militiamen are important, but militiamen are not the people we can be relying on to fight our everyday wars. Yes, they did serve a a role, especially in the back country, like in South Carolina, or on the frontier in Virginia during the American Revolution or the French and Indian War. But as our country is now, at this time, almost close to being 40 years old, times have changed. And if we're gonna be a competitive nation, not just around the world, but on the high seas, We're going to have to improve our military, and that means military on land. Yes, a standing army can be seen as a threat at any given time, but when it comes to war, and not just in peace, we've got to find ways to become better as a military. We've got to be able to prove to the people that, hey, we don't have to be seen as a threat but we've got to find ways to ensure that you all are protected. So, the burning of Washington, as, as horrific as it was, it made Madison, President Madison realize that militiamen could no longer be seen as that primary force. Besides Major General Samuel Smith, what other prominent U.S. military figures will help make their presence known come the time for the Battle of Baltimore? We're going to talk about three naval um, officers, and they all have illustrious careers. Captain John Rogers to Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry to Captain David Porter. We'll start with Captain John Rogers. He was born in 1772, a child of the American Revolution. Of course, the war, that war itself doesn't break out until 1775. But he is a part of that uh, generation uh, who would have witnessed war and who would have witnessed um, our country declare its separation from England. He was born two years after the Boston Massacre, a year before the infamous Boston Tea Party breaks out. But he's born in Perryville, Maryland. He is the oldest of eight children. His father was Colonel John Rogers, so the guy already has... Um, not just military blood in him, but that of naval blood. And he had ambitions at a very early age of making life at sea his career. He becomes an apprentice to a Captain Benjamin Folger, who is a master shipbuilder of Baltimore and a veteran of the American Revolution. Through Captain Benjamin Folger, John Rogers becomes first mate of the merchant ship Harmony at age 17. So by the time Captain John Roger, well, he's not captain obviously yet, but by the time he becomes first mate of the merchant ship Harmony, we're talking about between 1789, 1790. And remember this too, um, audience. 17, you're out at sea. Think about it. This is your life right here we're talking about, and young men are learning the arts or the trade of being out at sea at a very early age. This might also be a good way of keeping them out of trouble. This is also a way of separating boys from men. in other words, you start out as a boy, but you're going to learn how to become a man here soon you're going to learn how you're going to learn how to um, know what it's like to um what do you call it, um, show bravery and courage, determination, it's going to be an example of survival of the fittest. And in order to be in the military, it is. it boils down to um, survival of the fittest. Well, Captain John Rogers serves as captain, he goes on to serve as captain, I should say, of the ship ship. Known as Jane, which was owned none other than by Baltimore's most famous merchants, Samuel and John Smith. That's a good connection right there to have. Rogers himself, while commanding Jane, mastered the art of ship's command. And how so? He took on situations involving life and death that tested a man's level of bravery. There again, separating boys from men. How many presidents would Mister uh, Mister Rogers, or should I say Mister John Rogers? How many presidents would he go on to serve in a span of four decades? Six. Six presidents. So if you think about this, when he started on the ship Harmony, his first mate in 1789, who's the president of the United States? George Washington. He even served in the uh, Barbary Wars. Now, I learned about the Barbary Wars some years back, but they were wars involving pirates along the Mediterranean. And many of our men uh, were captured. We're not talking about pirates like Blackbeard. We're talking about um, uh, people uh, along the Mediterranean coast who were taking our men hostage. And um, it did involve a North African country known as Tripoli. Thomas Jefferson is president during the Barbary Wars, and that's and and Captain John Rogers was a part of that um, of that uh, series of events. But. He is impacted by the War of 1812. As a matter of fact, his family's home in Havre de Gras, Maryland, was destroyed in 1813 when the British forces ransacked the entire village of the town. And it's safe to say by the War of 1812, his experience overseas has proven significant because it's going to be needed ever so um, sorely come the Battle of Baltimore in order to save our country Our second person that we'll be talking about is Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry who was born in 1785, most well-known and prominent member of the Perry family naval dynasty. His older brother was Commodore Matthew Perry and he is the son of U.S. Navy Captain Christopher Raymond Perry. Well, he was born in Rhode Island if that gives you any indication, right there. He was appointed a midshipman in the U.S. Navy at the age of 13 in April of 1799. That's pretty remarkable at the age of 13, but here again, if you're going to make a name for yourself in the military, especially in the Navy, you've got to get your feet wet at a very early age. And and, you've, and it means learning all the different trades on this ship. You, you just don't earn your rank overnight. You're going to earn it, but you've got to do a variety of things. So one of his first big tests as a young man at age 13 is in April of 1799. He sails aboard the USS General Green, which was probably named after Nathaniel Greene, who was the commander of the Southern Continental Army of the American Revolution. But none other, who is commanding the USS General Greene? It would be Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry's father. Of course, he's not Commodore yet, but Oliver Hazard Perry's father, Christopher Perry. He is commanding the ship. And at age 14, he sees combat firsthand off the coast of Haiti. We all know about Haiti, right? Um, Haiti is in the um, Caribbean It was a French colony for a number of years. As a matter of fact, the Haitians overthrew the French in 1804, when Thomas Jefferson is president. Haiti had been in a state of rebellion for a number of years, but the Haitians did not like the fact that the French were colonizing their their country and they had enough forces to take over to overthrow overthrow the French. Most notably, who's in control of France? Napoleon Bonaparte. Well, Oliver Hazard Perry went on to serve under Captain John Rogers, who we just mentioned earlier, whom commanded the USS Essex and the USS Constitution, known as Old Ironsides. Well, Oliver Perry was placed, at this point in time, was placed in charge of um, gunboat construction in both Newport and Westerly, Rhode Island. Now, um, here we go. Here's some other good information here on Commodore Perry. In 1809, he commanded the Sloop USS Revenge to go about enforcing the Embargo Act from 1807. If those of you who are new and just starting to listen to these uh, podcast sessions on Through the Perilous Fight, here's a refresher. And for those of you who have been listening for some time, um, here's a good reminder. What is, that? what is the Embargo Act? Well, it was a piece of legislation that was passed by Congress it wasn't so much passed by Congress. I mean, it was passed by Congress, and President Thomas Jefferson signed it, but Jefferson did not like the fact that British ships, or shall I say British commanders of ships on the high seas, were capturing our sailors and impressing them. In other words, forcing them against their own will to fight for the British. Not just fight for the British, but to be a part of their crew. And so Thomas Jefferson felt it was best to sign a piece of legislation issuing an embargo that is prohibiting all trade with England. As great as that looked on paper, it it lost its luster. It lost its luster to all of those in New England, including Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut. All of those states who are dependent, not just on the water, but are dependent on goods coming in and out of their ports, and a majority of those goods going to England and goods coming from England into the United States. The Embargo Act uh, closed the ports and left thousands of men without a job. So. Oliver Perry in 1809, yes, he is commanding a sloop, USS Revenge, to enforce this embargo. Now, just so that you all know, within a short period of time, this act does get uh, repealed. In other words, Congress realizes that, hey, especially those who are anti-federalists realize, hey, this was a mistake. We're the ones suffering in the end. Well, true or false, at the start of the War of 1812, did the British control all five Great Lakes? What are the names of the five Great Lakes people? Superior, Huron, Erie, Michigan, Ontario. False. The British did control four of the five Great Lakes, but there was an exception. They did not have control over Lake Huron. I find this interesting. I'm not sure why that was the case. I'd have to do some research on it. I can admit I even got stumped on it. I didn't even know about it, but it is worth pointing out. Now, how does Oliver Perry rise to further status at this time? He is given command of the American naval forces on Lake Erie. And it's a very good thing he was given the uh, command of the, of the naval forces on Lake Erie. I'm not sure who else would have been capable of doing it. Because he is the one that um, emerges as a hero. He is in command of a ship known as the USS Lawrence. It had an infamous battle flag on it. Don't give up the ship. In other words, no matter what cost it takes you don't give it up to the enemy. You fight till the very end, but you do everything there is in your power to keep that ship in your possession. Because remember, people, naval warfare is far different from land. I mean, there are similarities, but it's far different. When, you, when two ships from, two, from separate countries are fighting against each other, whoever merges victorious not only takes the um, men from the opposition as prisoners of war, they take all of the um, essentials, not just essentials, but really the prize being the ship itself and all of its valuables from inside. So it's not like the ship that loses can just go about its merry way back to shore and uh, rebuild itself and then go out to fight for another day. That's not how naval warfare is constructed so the. US who is the USS Lawrence named after it's named in honor of Perry's friend Captain James Lawrence, the ship's namesake we do emerge victorious at Lake Erie it marked the first time in history where an entire British naval squadron in a squadron you know in early on I mentioned about flotilla from a previous podcast. Flotilla mean is Spanish. it means small units of ships coming up a river or up along the bay like the Chesapeake Bay to um, engage the enemy in um, uh, in like say naval warfare, but a squadron are larger units of ships it's the opposite of the flotilla so this entire British naval squadron surrendered and there are many reasons why the battle at Lake Erie in 1813 was so essential to the Americans. The victory protected the entire Ohio Valley, that is, Ohio, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee. It protected, um, I guess you could say, what we now know as present-day West Virginia at the time. But the Ohio Valley, was a heavily, at the time, it still was a heavily fortified um Indian uh, bastion, and to make matters worse, the British are still in alliance with the Indians. They are luring the Indians in to say, hey, if you join us, we can remove all of the um, frontier settlements in that present-day Northwest Territory of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, we can remove those white white settlers out of your all's territory, and we could even give you all a whole new nation. As a matter of fact, Britain wanted the Indians to have a, a, a new nation that would have even replaced Ohio itself. And then in 1813, uh, Tecumseh, I mentioned him earlier from another podcast, he was a prominent war pro- Indian prophet who brought several Indian uh, tribal nations together along the Northwest Territory frontier to take up arms with the British and their um, in their hostilities towards the Americans. Well, Tecumseh dies in battle, at a battle in uh, southwest Ontario. And when he dies and uh, another um, prophet also goes, that whole... Um, Revival or resurgence dies with it, too. In other words, that Confederacy block goes. So, for us, this is huge because now the Ohio Valley is back in our possession. Our last person we we will be talking about is uh, Captain David Porter. He was born in 1780 in Boston, Massachusetts. He's born one year before the British will ultimately surrender at Yorktown. He serves in the Quasi-War, which is an undeclared war fought almost entirely at sea between the United States and France from 1798 to 1800. He also fights in the First Barbary War, serving as a first lieutenant of ships, known as the, the Enterprise, New York and Philadelphia. As a lieutenant, he served second in command of the schooner USS Experiment. In 1806, he is promoted to Master Commandant, and from 1808 to 1810, he becomes uh, in charge of the naval forces at New Orleans. The War of 1812 was at the start of the war. Porter himself is promoted to captain, and on July 2nd of 1812, he becomes commander of the USS Essex. In February of 1813, he sailed the frigate Essex around Cape Horn, which is the southernmost coastal landscape in Chile, South America. Many of ships were known to sail all the way around Cape Horn, and it was a very, very dangerous excursion. As a matter of fact, uh, not to get off track, but it does pertain to Cape Horn. If any of you all are looking for a good uh, sea book about uh, sea life to read, not just sea life, but about maritime history to read, read um, Nathaniel Philbricks' The Essex. The Essex was a boat, and it, I don't know if it's, this could be the same boat as I just mentioned a second ago, the USS Essex, but the Essex was a ship that, that uh, hailed out of... Um, Nantucket. Do any of y'all know where Nantucket is? It's not far from Martha's Vineyard, off the primary Cape Cod coast in Massachusetts. But for many of years, Nantucket was heavily dependent on the whaling industry. Well, the low, the the fishermen, or the commercial fishermen, I should say, had. Um, done their yearly rituals by going out and uh, killing whales, I should say uh, humpback whales. They killed humpback whales for their blubber and also um, for ultimately for, care, uh, for uh, oil purposes, for uh, kerosene lighting. Well, to long story short, they killed so many whales along the Cape uh, Cod coast that the whale population was depleted. What, is, what does the crew of this ship do? they're so desperate for this lifestyle to continue to go on, they will venture all the way to, the, uh, to Cape Horn, being the southernmost part of Chile, but the route they take is a very um, dangerous one. They go all the way from the Atlantic Ocean to around the coast of Spain and Portugal, then make a sharp turn southward To go all the way to South America, they would go off the coast of Brazil, and then go further south to that southernmost part of Chile. Can you imagine a voyage like that? Well, I'll tell you, I don't want to spoil this, but the reason why they would go there was for one, that was where all the whales were, and two, In order to keep their livelihood, in terms of uh, whaling, alive, this is where they went. This is where they they were desperate. They were desperate to ensure the livelihood of their economy. So the bottom line is, is that many people sailed around Cape Horn and many people did not return. It was that dangerous of a journey. But Captain David Porter did. I don't know how he did, he just had a lot of good luck. Let's put it that way. Cape Horn, interesting enough, marks the northern boundary of the Drake Passage, and it's where the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans meet. Where else do the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans meet, people? It's an engineering marvel of the world. The Panama Canal. Prior to the Panama Canal being built, The Atlantic and Pacific Oceans did not meet in that area. They were, what do you call it, separate entities, separate entities of water, let's say. Well, it was here in Cape Horn where Captain David Porter cruised the Pacific warring on British whalers, that is, ships who were into, the, into whaling, he would capture 12 whale ships with 360 prisoners. He would go on to command other ships besides the USS Essex, ranging from the USS Amphitheater to USS Constitution, known as Old Ironsides, to USS Enterprise. People, um, or should I say audience, is it safe to say that the American Navy, even though, yes, our Navy yard in Washington, D.C. had to be blown, blown up because our, our forces were fearful that the British were going to take it, and they had every right to be, but is it safe to say that our Navy could, is a lot stronger than our Army at this time? The answer is yes. We have far more experienced men out at sea than we do on land. And had it not been for our Navy, which scored some major victories, in large part because of Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry on Lake Erie, and and to those who were on the USS Constitution, Old Ironsides, this war probably could have ended a lot sooner. We're, we're showing the British Navy that we're not, um, we're not a second-class military force. Our Army may be second or third class in terms of its ability to perform, but our Navy is first class. And for those of you, real quick, who want to know, I, haven't been, I have been to Lake Erie. Uh, when I, my wife and I went to Niagara Falls two years ago, we saw uh, parts of Lake Erie, which was pretty neat. Now, the Battle of Lake Erie, if any of you all want to know where it's at, it was in Ohio. It was um around an area known as Putin Bay. It was also known uh, to be near um Marblehead or what we and also Sandusky, uh Genoa, all of that area. There are um islands uh, to, just to the north of Lake Erie where you can get, go by um, ferry to connect to. And how I know about this is <laughs> modern-day talk here, people, but through um, the Smithsonian Channel, uh, Aerial America on Ohio, there is a memorial honoring uh, Commodore Oliver Perry for the battle, and I hope one day to be able to visit it. It, it would be very well worth uh, seeing. There is also another um, Place in Ohio, uh, just on the outskirts of Toledo. And uh, Lake Erie's westernmost edge uh, goes into northwest Ohio, where Toledo is. It's not far from the Maumee River. But uh, there is a place uh, not far from Toledo known as Fort Meggs, which was uh, another big uh, victory for the Americans in 1813. We were able to keep uh, the British and um, Indians from. Uh, from taking over the fort. It had been very well fortified to where they just simply could not, um, break our, uh, command or break our, uh, break the lines. You know, um, I hope that many of you out there have learned a great deal about this, uh, war. Of course, we're not completely finished just yet, but we have, but we're getting to the point now where, um, we're going to see a a rebirth of our country, we're going to see people become proud again to be Americans, we're going to see people um, not turn their backs, but we're also going to see our government, we're going to see our government be even stronger too. As I said earlier, President Madison had to see for himself firsthand that militiamen are not the answer to fighting superior forces, and that means foreign countries and I should point this out too I tried every I tried to look for where this was in the book but I do remember it now when the British burned Washington led by Major General Robert Ross and Rear Admiral George Coburn I want to say it was Rear Admiral Coburn that said this to a group of bystanders in Washington he protected their private property but he told a group of people this if george washington were if general george washington were alive today he would never have allowed this to have happened but he is probably rolling in his grave right now watching your capital be burnt he is rolling in his grave seeing government buildings burnt what does that tell you right there okay George Washington just didn't become father of our country overnight. He worked like a Turk to be father of our country. He sacrificed everything for his men. He was with them in times of uncertainty. He was with them to lead them to the inevitable. Meaning that Battle of Trenton, where they crossed the Delaware River, it took about eight to nine hours for all the men who made it over. But they made it to their destination. They captured nearly a thousand Hessian soldiers. They kept the cause for freedom alive. Washington did not leave anything on the table. He gave his men hope when it needed, when there had to be hope. When Washington was burnt by the British in 1814, there was no hope. But that's going to change here soon, and now that we are getting better leadership, now that Brigadier General William Winder gets replaced by Major General Samuel Smith as the head commander of Baltimore, better days are ahead for us, and we're going to be finding, learning more about that in the next podcast. Thank you, audience, for listening in on a Sunday evening. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and for those of you who have to go to work tomorrow, be safe, whether you're working at your office or from home. Regardless, be safe. We're going to get through this one way or another. God bless and take care.